Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Design B&B is looking for a senior project manager in Chicago, Illinois. iShares by BlackRock is looking for a user experience designer in New York City. The Poetic Justice Group at MIT Media Lab is looking for a back-end developer with Python experience in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they're open to remote candidates. And Lautman, Mosca, Neal & Company is looking for a graphic production artist in Washington, D.C. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Before we get into this week's interview, just want to let you know this is the final week to take our audience survey. Actually, it's the final two days because this is coming out on May 30th, May 31st at the end of the month. That's when the survey will close on midnight on May 31st. So you don't have a lot of time to get your feedback in. Of course, we do this survey because we want to hear from you. We want to know what do you love about the show? What do you not love about the show? Who do you want us to interview next? We'd love to take all of that information to help make this show better. So please, if you haven't already, go ahead and submit. You can go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. And again, the last day for that's going to be May 31st at midnight. Thank you all so much for those who have already submitted your feedback. We really appreciate it. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400-plus domain name extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Just go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Chip Gross, Managing Director for Work & Co. in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Chip Gross. I'm the Atlanta Managing Director for Work & Co. Now, how has 2022 been going for you so far? I know you started off this year, you know, mentioning Work & Co. You started off with some pretty big news. Right. Yeah. No, it's been uh, a really dynamic time and you know, really exciting at the same same perspective. I mean, starting off in January, I guess I decided to, you know, make a bit of a change and join Working Co. You know, as we were making a decision to come into Atlanta and establish a uh, a space and a, a studio here. And, you know, from there, you know, the excitement has been palpable. The response has been really positive. I think Atlanta in many ways has been awaiting more opportunities to have a company that focuses on digital product design. So um, it's been nothing but good news and hopefully more good news as we roll through um, more of the year. But it's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah, I was curious, you know, when I heard about Work & Co. opening an office down here. I mean, I was excited, first of all, but then also curious, like why set up a presence here in Atlanta? Because as people may or may not know, like it's headquartered in Brooklyn, but you've got offices all over the world. Like what about Atlanta was significant enough for Working Co. to say we want an office here? 
Well, I think there's a, a few different reasons for us to look at Atlanta as a place that we wanted to put a space or a studio. One of them is, you know, you'll see from the different places that we're located, because we've got eight offices globally. That includes, like you mentioned, Brooklyn. That's also, uh, we've got Portland. We announced LA at the same time we announced um, Atlanta. And then we also have Copenhagen, Belgrade, and we also have Rio and San Paulo. So one of the things that I think is a unifying factor around the places that we put our studios, our offices, is we want to be a place where we can find really great talent. And Atlanta is a place that I think has been underrepresented for a long time in terms of the experienced digital talent that exists here. And you know, having previously uh, been involved in establishing a, um, a studio in Atlanta, I have no doubt that there's a lot of really great designers and technologists and, and product managers that have been looking for an opportunity to work for a, um, a company like ours. And then in addition, you know, I think one of the other aspects of where we put offices is also, in many ways, not looking at where we can build collections of clients, but actually where we can also build and amplify culture. So, you know, whether it's Copenhagen or Brooklyn or Portland or L.A., you know, in many ways, these are kind of centers of culture. And um, Atlanta is very much in that same perspective. I mean, we literally have a, a sitcom named after us that's been, uh, <laughs> you know, getting a lot of people really excited about what Atlanta's about. I mean, we're the cradle of the civil rights movement, all the social activism around that. You know, we've got this outsized impact on music and media and all those things we feel like are really rich kind of collection of advantages that I think are really uniquely Atlanta. And yeah, we have being in Atlanta, this thing about Atlanta influencing everything. And mm -hmm. uh, we really do take that to heart. And we think Atlanta is a, a perfect place for us to position a, a studio and, and have a presence. How has it been so far adjusting to this new role, especially with not just coming into the company, but also establishing an office here during a pandemic? It's been different from other times when we've, uh, or at least when I've been involved in doing this type of a new studio implementation. You know, I think in many ways, we've kind of seen this as an opportunity to think about what does it really mean to create a post-pandemic studio, you know, and think about creating an environment and a place where people don't necessarily have to be, but they want to be, and creating an environment where people are excited to come and collaborate. Because you kind of see as I'm talking, you know, I really struggle with even calling it an office. Mm -hmm. And I really think about this more in terms of creating a space for all of our different team members to be able to collaborate together. And, you know, I really lean more heavily in calling it a studio because it's a place of creation. So whether you're creating a design or you're creating a collection of code, we want to create a place where people feel that they can come and be part of something bigger and also do it in a way that also creates impact, not just for the companies that we're working with, but also the communities that we're established within. And also being in Atlanta, I think you know, we want to make sure that we're building a, a studio that also looks and feels like Atlanta, you know, that mm. really does amplify and build off of all the rich culture and diversity and capability that's here. And I think that's a really powerful thing for us to be able to tap. And one of the things that gets me really excited when I think about the possibilities here. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more. Like, talk to me more about your work at Working Co. as managing director. Like, what does an average day look like for you with your team, with your direct reports, et cetera? Yeah, well, it's still early days for us. And, you know, we're still in the process of building more of the team. But, you know, on a I guess if there is an average day, you know, because so much of it is defined by, you know, what's happening in the course of a particular set of projects that we may be involved in because we're establishing ourselves with, you know, I mean, we've been in the Atlanta market for the last two years. So we've had people that have been here, but, you know, now starting to figure out 
where we physically want to be located within the city. Uh, we're in the process of finding that right place for us to have uh, a physical location. Right now, we're cl- pretty close to some space in the West Midtown area. And we kind of have been looking at that area because it's a very dynamic and vibrant part of the city. It's in close proximity to all of these great academic institutions, whether it be Georgia Tech, you know, Georgia State. It's not too far from Emory. We also have close proximity to the Atlanta University Center. So as we want to become part of the, the broader Atlanta community, it really gives us a really nice foothold there. So on any day, we're in the process of vetting and looking at possible locations to build out the studio. In many cases, we're doing interviews and trying to find more great team members to bring on to the Atlanta team. There's been a lot of really great interest and excitement from the business community here to learn more about Work & Co. and, and the work that we do and the types of digital product capability that we can bring. So a day for me could be sitting down with a a candidate and talking to them about all the potential that we have and that, you know, the things that we're trying to bring into the market. It could be sitting down and talking with potential clients, also ensuring that our team also has a chance to get together and build some of that culture and community that we really think is going to be critical. So I guess for lack of a better way to describe it, In some ways, it's unpredictable, but in many ways, it's helping to help us drive this objective of having a really strong presence and even more visibility within the Atlanta community. Okay, so the Atlanta office is hiring. Okay, that's... uh... It it definitely is hiring. (laughs) We have been hiring. So there are folks that are interested in in getting involved in a, uh, a company that very singularly is focused on digital product design and and development, you know, Working Co. is a great place to look at. All right. And of course, for folks who are probably regular listeners of the show, they know that Working Co. also has posted many positions on our job board. So mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get a chance to expand that to include the the Atlanta office as well. So I know this isn't your first time leading a studio. You were a studio lead at AKQA. Mm-hmm. You were, before Working Co., you were managing director at Bright House. Right. When you look back at those two and then look at what you're doing now, what makes Work & Co. a different experience? Well, you know, in many ways, what excited me about Work & Co. is the fact that we're very singularly focused on digital product design and development. I mean, when you think about even our name, Work & Co., the intent behind the name is focusing on the work that you do and the company you keep. So when we talk about the work, it really is focused on a company that doesn't do or try to do everything across the spectrum of digital advertising and other dimensions of the digital ecosystem. We really are focused on designing and building and shipping products that we think will transform companies and by extension the world. The founding of Work Co. was very much built on this premise of stripping away things that we felt were not necessarily critical in the aim of doing this work of designing and building digital products. So the co side of it, you know, in terms of the company, was really intentionally developed so that we could ensure that we have the right tools and the right abilities to help create the right environment for creativity to flourish. And you'll see that even like if you come in and you work with Work & Co., you'll see that yeah, we've really tried to ensure that we don't have people focused on things that take them away from the time it takes to really do the type of level of digital product work that we do. We don't do, for example, timesheets. Yeah, we've been doing this long enough for nine years now where we've got a really definite and definitive methodology for how we do the work. So we're able to have teams that are dedicated to a particular project and don't spread ourselves across three or four things at once where we're not able to have everybody really focused on 
what's most critical to developing this particular product for this particular client. And I think a lot of the work that we've been able to produce really speaks for itself, whether it's building an omni-channel experience for IKEA and helping them figure out what their first e-commerce app should look like, whether it's working with Apple and thinking about what's the in-store experience. And yeah, when you think about what today at Apple is, a lot of that was helped conceptualized by Work & Co. And then we've also obviously spent time working with a wide range of clients and helping them to develop products that we think are game changers and able to help transform the ways that they uh, deliver their services to their their users. Now, you mentioned some uh, some pretty big names there. I'm curious, how do you approach a new project? Like say a client, they go to Work & Co.'s website, they email you, what does that process look like to get started with a project? One of the things that I would definitely say is having been at a number of different digital shops, one of the things I've been really impressed with the process at Working Co. is it really does begin with understanding, is this work that we think is going to be shippable? Because as you saw, yeah, when we talked about kind of the importance of the work side of things, not only want to design and think about how we can create beautiful and dynamic and amazing digital products, but we also want to make sure that they're ones that actually come and live in the world. So when we talk about shipping, you know, over the nine years that we've been in existence, we've shipped over 300 different products. So the beginning of our process is really trying to understand, is this going to be meaningful work? You know, are our teams going to be excited about engaging on this work? Is it going to be work that's meaningful and that's going to have impact? And, you know, it doesn't always necessarily mean it's going to be the most lucrative work for working co every time. You know, we've done work with Planned Parenthood. We did a chat bot that uh, was ranked as one of the 100 top innovations the year that we developed it with uh, with Planned Parenthood. We've done work with, we just released uh, breastcancer.org. We've thought about what are the things that are important for us to be able to invest our team's time in. And candidly, you know, in the business development process, we generally have a pretty solid stream of work that's coming in, whether it's just through, like you mentioned, the email channels or, you know, we have past clients that refer us for work that they think might be uh, worthwhile for us to take a look at. In some cases, it's uh, a friend of a friend of a friend that knows the type of work that we do. But in many cases, we have a lot more work to vet then we end up actually doing because we really want to be thoughtful and purposeful about the work that we um, decide to actually proceed with. So once we get to that point, we want to make sure that we shepherd the work through the company and the same level of care, ensuring that whether it's something that's going to be starting with strategy and working itself into design and then potentially into development. Yeah, we get all the different stakeholders involved, looking at the work, making sure that we're asking the right questions, and then building out a scope with product management leading it so that the people that are actually delivering the work are the people that are actually scoping the work, which in other agencies that I've worked in hasn't always been the case. And in some cases, it's really led to some problematic projects as a result. So again, because we're so singularly focused in developing digital product and shipping it, we're able to be really, really thoughtful and intentional about how we actually move the work into the um, the company and we build the right team that's going to really be passionate and excited about the work. And then we also make sure that we're working collaboratively with the client as we do the work. So we have a saying within Working Co. that we do prototypes, not presentations. And the ways that we actually create and concept the work is through the process of creation and iteration. So we're not going away thinking about what this could be and then coming back to the client and showing them something that's in process. They're actually working with us in some cases in the Figma files, seeing it evolve and kind of become this conceptual product and then eventually a detailed design product and then eventually, you know, a product that goes out and lives in the world and helps them 
be transformative and uh, engaging with their their users as a result. Now, I feel like, you know, even with all of that that you mentioned, it's super important to have something like that here in Atlanta. I mean, and we'll get, you know, kind of more into your background, but I know just from starting out here as a designer and working my way in different companies and stuff, I don't know, the Atlanta design scene has been different from what you may see in New York or Silicon Valley in terms of like that level of focus not necessarily, I would say, on product, but certainly not in the ways that you've just described it with Working Co. It almost seems to be a bit more, I don't want to say transactional. The Actually, the word I'm looking for is behind. It feels a little hmm. like Atlanta sometimes. And I'm making a, a gross generalization here from my vantage point, <laughs> but sometimes it has felt a little behind. And I've heard this even from other you know, Atlanta design professionals I've had on the show, from friends of mine and colleagues. They're just like, Atlanta is not there yet in terms of it being a design city like where you would have that sort of variety maybe with like i said silicon valley or or you know new york city or something i would actually disagree with that hypothesis because i think in many ways atlanta has been very much and i'm talking in the context of digital product design and development yeah we've had a number of agencies here and in some cases what I think it's overshadowed is, you know, there's a lot of great campaign work and there's a number of kind of more traditional advertising agencies that have been kind of above the radar. But for as long as I've been in Atlanta and in this space, I think there's been a lot of really great work that gets developed or designed in Atlanta, but maybe it's out of an agency that is primarily based in another geography. So a lot of the talent in Atlanta candidly doesn't get the same shine that it might get in another city like Chicago or New York or Silicon Valley, just because um, mm-hmm. the work is kind of used coming out of those places, when in many cases, some of the design of the development work is actually happening in Atlanta. So that's another reason why for us, having a actual studio space here will really allow us to showcase and amplify the working co-level work that can be done and produced you know, out of Atlanta and also contribute to the work that we're doing across all of our different geographies. I mean, again, one of the reasons that we're here is because we think and we've seen so much talent that doesn't necessarily get a chance to engage on work that happens in Copenhagen, for example, or work that may also take flight initially in Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo. So in many ways, we really do believe that making this connection between the level of work that Working Code does with the level of talent that we know exists in Atlanta, we think is very much a, a marriage made in heaven. Atlanta talent does not necessarily get the same shine. I totally agree with that. Again, like I'm, I'm basically off of my viewpoint of, again, like I said, you've been here and you've mm-hmm. certainly seen much more in the, in the creative community, but I definitely have felt that I'm not disagreeing with you from what you're saying because I do know that there are several people with that may have started out here as design students or started out as designers and then they just felt the opportunity wasn't here. So they had to go somewhere else or they go somewhere else and do well and then now Atlanta sort of wants to claim that in some kind of way. It's an interesting kind of thing, but I hope that with Working Co. kind of being here, it'll help to really bolster what you said earlier about the creative community here. I think so, and I think the secret is definitely getting out. I mean, you hear about a new company every week that's decided to build a a presence in Atlanta, whether it's Nike or Airbnb, BlackRock or um, Visa. I mean, all these companies are now coming to the realization that Atlanta really does have something attractive and unique and diverse and something that they can't necessarily find as easily in other parts of the country or, you know, albeit the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of which, let's talk about where you grew up, which was not Atlanta. <laughs> you're uh, you're originally from Delaware. Talk to me about growing up there. Yeah, it's not a place that a lot of people necessarily claim to be from. Yes, shout out uh, Joe Biden and Aubrey Plaza as two other Delawareans. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was originally born in Delaware and grew up in Delaware for the, about the first nine years of my life. 
my dad actually worked for a uh, insurance company. So as a result, we moved around a good bit. But you know, Delaware was really interesting just because during the time that I was there, Delaware was going through a bit of a awakening itself. And one of the most, I guess, formative experiences that I had was when I was you know, in elementary school and Carter had gone through the process of the busing between suburban and urban areas. And I actually, my uh, family had moved from the downtown area of Delaware into the suburbs. And then I actually had the unique experience of being one of the few black students who actually was living in more of a suburban area, but was being bused into an urban area to help bring better sense of diversity to the in-town schools. And it was a really amazing experience. And I think it really helped underscore and you know gave me some perspective on just some of the disparities that exist between both sides of it, you know, whether folks that were living in the urban communities or um, even the the folks that were living in suburban areas that just didn't have the same level of awareness of what it meant to be different. And also the importance of being able to have an appreciation for navigating different types of environments, you know, Mm -hmm. whether you were a black student in a white environment or a white student in a black environment, it was a tremendously eye-opening experience. And I think something that also gave me a lot of desire to always try and find common ground as I grew up and lived in different places over time. So, you know, after the the nine years in Delaware, I moved from Delaware to New Jersey, a fairly rural area of New Jersey, spent a few years there. Then my parents actually moved from New Jersey to Baltimore. And I had a, a different experience there when I lived in the suburbs of Baltimore. Then we actually moved from Baltimore to um New York City, that was the beginning of high school for me. New York in the uh, the mid-80s was a pretty interesting place to spend time. I think that was another just opportunity for me just to see the importance of diversity and living among a uh, community that was in- comprised of everything from white Catholics to you know, Dominicans to Puerto Ricans to um, Haitians, Jamaicans. It really gave me a, a love of that type of environment. And then ironically, my parents moved from New York City to the western suburbs of Chicago. And if anyone out there knows you know, what Naperville and Lyle are like as part of DuPage County. I think it's probably at the time when I moved there, it was like 95 or 97% white. So I almost went into culture shock going from Stuyvesant Town, Lower East Side of Manhattan to Mm -hmm. the suburbs of um, Chicago in an environment where I was literally, I think I was maybe the one of two African-Americans in my senior class. I don't think there were any black females in my uh, senior class. That was definitely a very interesting period of time. And I think I learned how to you know, deal with a good bit of solitude, but also learn to stand up for myself. I think it helped me develop a certain level and awareness of self that I wouldn't have otherwise had if I had remained in one place my entire life. So your family kind of did the whole like New England tour, you know, for the Thrown in Connecticut, you had the tri-state area pretty much. It was just about, yeah. And then, of course, <laughs> you know, after high school, I actually went to Philly. So uh, I think I decided that uh, Chicago was great, but it was nice to get back on the East Coast. Okay. Talk to me about your time uh, in Philadelphia. You were at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. That was another kind of formative experience for me because if you remember, and I guess I'm I'm dating myself, yeah, I was there kind of in the late 80s going into the early 90s. So there was kind of this whole kind of black African-American awakening. You know, we were dealing with everything from the Rodney King you know, incidents with the LAPD, and we had some protests related to that. While I was there, some of uh, my classmates and I actually started a uh, African-American newspaper. So I had a chance to get involved in kind of the creation of uh, media and helping to create a voice for the, the black community at Penn. 
were one of the first times I think we got a chance as a African-American organization to celebrate Kwanzaa. And it was just a, a oh, chance wow. for us to, you know, really kind of say we're here and, you know, we're a vibrant part of the community. I remember going to dances and listening to Public Enemy and, you know, all of the great beginnings of, you know, hip hop music and rap that uh, in many ways were kind of a, a signifier for just the the importance of culture during that period of time. Yeah, I think also being at Penn, it also gave me a lot more confidence knowing that I could definitely hold my own with uh, the best and the brightest, so to speak, um, mm -hmm. within the uh, university and also had a chance to just develop some really great friendships that you know I have to this day. So um, it was a really great experience and opportunity for me. I bet it was fun too, wasn't it? It was a blast. I mean, you know, <laughs> I probably don't want to incriminate myself on no, this no, uh, no. <laughs> podcast, but we, we had a, uh, a phenomenal time and um, I don't think I would have changed anything about that time at Penn. It was a really great time. Now, you know, after you, you graduated from Penn, you were working at Hewitt as a consultant, right. which uh, eventually is what brought you down here to Atlanta, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, um, and I mean, to give the listeners context, I mean, coming out in, in the early 90s, there was no World Wide Web. So at the time, when I worked, went to work for Hewitt, I actually kind of stumbled into the technology side of things because Hewitt was basically a consultancy that helped companies set up and establish benefits and manage 401k plans. And they had actually had a solution that was mainframe based and they were migrating it to a client server environment. And in the process of getting involved in that, I really became that much more enamored and interested in technology. That's what kind of piqued my interest in wanting to, even though I had focused in economics at Penn, you know, I'd always had kind of a love of technology. I mean, when I was younger, I played around with, you know, Atari game systems and Commodore 64s. And mm -hmm. All of that just started to become that much more interesting to me. So there was an opportunity to actually go from Chicago, where I was working, to Atlanta, because that's where they were migrating this new technology system. And never been to the South, had always heard good things about Atlanta, and um, decided that's where I wanted to go ahead and, and try to see what Atlanta was like. And uh, ironically, I came down here and just never left. I mean, you came down here in culturally what I think just had to be such a rich time. I mean, you mentioned everything that was going on in, in Philly, but then you come Absolutely. down here to Atlanta, and I'm not just talking about Freaknik, although Freaknik <laughs> is, I guess, kind of part of the the cultural ambiance of the 90s right. in Atlanta. But, you know, even to kind of just step back and look at where Black America was during that time, I mean, we mentioned music, you know, New Jack Swing, hip hop, et cetera. But then right. also the L.A. riots, like, and this is a time, as you mentioned, before the Internet. How did you feel kind of like as a Black man navigating like through the world at that time? I mean, as a black man in Atlanta, it was just such a, a welcoming environment, to be quite honest. I mean, I don't know if, if everybody has the same feeling, but, you know, whenever you're somewhere else and you fly into Atlanta, the minute you get off the plane and you walk into the terminal, you know, you can just feel kind of <laughs> the the embrace of blackness you yeah. know, throughout the uh the airport. And I think that it just extends to the city, you know, as as an African-American, Atlanta really is in many ways that proverbial Mecca, because the city is, uh, depending on where you draw the boundaries, whether it's the city proper, or the metro Atlanta area, you know, it's majority black or just about majority black, just the amount of culture and just the sense of belonging is really something that you just don't get in other cities to the same dimension that you get in Atlanta. So being able to come down here, and again, the context of Atlanta, this was right as the Olympics were happening. So the world was really mm -hmm. focused on Atlanta. There have been an amazing amount of investment in building up the 
the city preparing for all of these people descending on it from all across the world. You mentioned, you know, all of the different cultural aspects of Atlanta were also at play. For me, again, it was just another validation of the importance of being in an environment and a community that's supportive and really embraces you. That's one of the reasons why I think I've stayed so long and that I've grown a family here is it really helps to uh, give you a sense of a support system. And it just gives you a, you know, a sense of love and inclusion that I just don't think you necessarily find as much in other places, especially as a, as a person of color. That's very true. I mean, back, you know, pre-pandemic when I would travel for the show or I would travel for work, you know, nothing to me was more comforting than coming back, flying back into Atlanta, coming into the airport, and then you're you're taking the, the elevator up to baggage claim. Right. And you see the black girl with her arms like stretched <laughs> out like in a hug. I hear they put her back. I know they took it down for a while because they put up this like digital screen but i heard that they put her back up there but it's just like this embrace like welcome home and so many people i have talked to that don't live here do not understand they're like atlanta's this atlanta's that atlanta's a party city blah 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 i'm like i feel so at home and comfortable in myself and in my culture in atlanta than anywhere else i mean granted i've been here for a long time but Mm -hmm. there's a comfort here that lets you know, like, this is where you can always come home. Yeah, it's palpable. I mean, you really do feel it as you kind of move throughout the city. And I think you know, that's one of the reasons why there is so many transplants to Atlanta, because when people come down and they get a feel for that aspect of Southern hospitality, but also that sense of, you know, you can be from a lot of other places, but still feel at home in Atlanta. And I think it's something that a lot of people really connect to. Yeah. Now, it's 1995, you're in Atlanta, you're about to get your MBA from Emory. Tell me about that time. For me, you know, one of the things I've realized as I uh, was working with Hewitt was that in order for me to, I think, reach my fuller potential, whether I was going to focus on business or technology, was to go and invest and get the MBA, because I really think it gave me a better and deeper appreciation of what it means to not only build and run businesses, but also all the skills that you need to become a really good leader and be able to help work across different types of um, teams and groups. I mean, you know, MBA classes are generally case-based, so you're always kind of getting an appreciation of what it means to work as a team. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually experience that has really helped me as I've worked through different agencies. And, you know, when I've been on the client side, it's that ability to kind of cross over and build strong relationships as well as be able to Think about not only what's a great product experience, but also what's the broader ecosystem that these products need to live within and having appreciation for how something's going to generate revenue, how something's actually going to functionally work and operate, understanding what it means to if you're working on a fintech project, you know, understand all the different dimensions of managing assets and dealing with financial systems and cash management, all those underlying uh, processes. So for me, I think uh, the value of the MBA was really just being able to understand how businesses work, how teams, how you build the best teams how you develop the greatest ways of people being able to build really great products as a result because they're inspired and they're also investing in the importance of culture and collaboration. So that took me over to um, to Emory to go and go through the MBA program. It's something, again, was another formative experience for me. And I think it gave me some of the resilience I needed to have as you know, we were starting to reach the beginning of the 2000s and the world was starting to get a better appreciation for what the web and digital actually meant. Yeah, that's a really kind of peak time when the World Wide Web is starting to really kind of become something that is more and more commonplace. I mean, 
I remember I was in like high school going into college right around that time. Actually, in 2000, I was in college, but I was in college during that time in undergrad. And mm-hmm. I remember, <laughs> I remember I was uh, studying at Morehouse. I was studying computer science mm-hmm. and I was telling my advisor that I wanted to be a web designer because I had been kind of reverse engineering websites since I was in high school, like mm-hmm. trying to teach myself HTML and figure it out. And I really wanted to pursue that. And at the time, I mean, again, this is 2000. I didn't know that there was a difference between web design and studying computer science. I thought, well, it's all on the computer. <laughs> right. It's all this, it's all on the computer. It's the same thing, right? And I remember him telling me vividly that like the, the internet is just a fad. Like if mm-hmm. this is what you want to do, we don't do that here. We study programming for mainframes and all this sort of stuff. And I ended up switching my major to math after that. But like, it's really hard, I think now, especially in 2022, to realize that like 20 something years ago, the internet was such a completely different place than what it is now. I mean, the way the technology has grown and changed and evolved the world. But back then, it really was something that not a lot of people really knew about and were doing. But like at this time, you were working with an interactive agency, right? You were working at IXL. And actually, even before then, I mean, um, when I came out of business school, I actually went to IBM. You know, I went into the management consulting side of it. But very quickly thereafter, we kind of evolved into this whole question of uh, what is e-business and Mm. uh, what does the web mean in the context of helping companies engage digitally. And uh, it was a fun time because IBM was willing to invest in kind of an internal agency that they call the Arts Cafe for those who who remember that that time in IBM. And, you know, it was kind of this place where we had these quirky designers. And I think at one point we had like a three-legged dog that was uh, in the studio. <laughs> and um, we worked on things like the Masters and the Grammys. It was a really great time of exploration, beginning to think about what it meant to create websites and presence on the web, and then starting to think about, well, not only doing brochureware and uh, Mm. marketing on the web, but how do you actually create wholesale businesses where you then start to get into e-commerce and all the different ways that digital kind of evolved out of that. So for me... Being at IBM was a great kind of entry into this whole area of digital e-business. And, you know, it also gave me an appreciation for uh, what it meant, what it means to actually build product at scale and build things that have global implications. And you have to think about language and you have to think about the impact of launching products in different geographies with different you know rules and regulations. and you know, it was the thing that kind of really got me excited and passionate about digital. Wow. Brochureware. I have not heard that term <laughs> in forever. Wow. Good, but, good reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, you know, to, to your point, I mean, e-commerce and so many things now that we completely take for granted over the web were just such new things like companies trying to figure out how can I conduct business on the internet. Because before, I I don't know, maybe like say before the 2000s, you know, the internet was essentially a library for the most part. Right. It was basically for research. You would find different university websites or you just find encyclopedias or things like that. It did not have a lot of entertainment value. I know that there were brands that were starting to kind of figure it out because then also you've got technology like Shockwave and real player that we're starting to bring media into this space. It's funny. When I do presentations, I have the slide and it shows, I think it's like a Pepsi world from 1999 and Uh, it shows like the full like matrixy experience, but then it has something on the bottom. That's like to take the slow lane. If you have, you know, less mm -hmm. than a 56.6, you know, kilobit modem or a kilobit modem or something like that, take the slow lane and, People are like, what does that mean? Because everything now is like the fast lane with broadband and stuff. But the internet was just such a interesting place and companies were really trying to figure out how can I be a part of it in some sort of way? Oh, for sure. And I think that's where you started to see this, the birth of different kind of 
digital companies, a lot of them were really driven by who was actually footing the bill because you'd have kind of the very technical consultancies that would engage with the CIO or the CTO. And then you'd have like the advertising, you know, the traditional advertising agencies that, you know, might be engaging with the CMO. And as a result, you know, you started to see your usual suspects start to move into digital advertising and experience at a very minimal level. And then you also had kind of the C-suite, you know, the CEO and the C-chief strategy officer who might be engaging with a consultancy like a a McKinsey or a BCG or um, a Bain, and them starting to come into digital, trying to determine, okay, well, strategically, where's the value that digital can bring? And I Mm -hmm. think that's where you started to see this morphing of companies into kind of this patchwork of different types of digital entities that were all trying to figure out what's the right way to come at digital at that time. It was a really, really dynamic time to be um, watching it all kind of emerge and unfold. Yeah, because things just changed so quickly. And to your point, like you said, there were a lot of people really just trying to figure it out. This is something completely new right. in a very nascent field. Nobody is, is quote unquote, an expert on it yet. Everyone's just trying to figure it out. Absolutely. So you've had such a storied career here in Atlanta. I'm not going to go through all of the experiences, but I will list them out so people can get a sense of like, I'm going to unfurl the scrolls so people can see what your, what your pedigree is. Show how old so, I am. No, 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 no. You've mentioned IBM. We talked about IXL, but you were at Interland. You were at UPS, right. Razorfish, Sapien Nitro, Hearst Autos. And then of course, earlier we mentioned AKQA mm-hmm. and Bright House. When you look back at all of those past experiences, what would you say are the most valuable things that you learned about yourself? All of them had their kind of learnings and takeaways. I think, you know, if you go back to IXL, which in some ways you could argue is one of the first, you know, kind of digital agencies that really just kind of staked its claim around digital. I think in some ways it became a little bit indicative of just all of the excitement around what digital could be, but also the crashing reality of going at digital and not understanding the underlying business realities Mm. of what it means to run an agency as well as um, Mm -hmm. what it means to understand what the marketplace was able to bear. I mean, I think IXL in particular was an interesting experience because there was so much potential and it grew so quickly into so many different areas of focus that it almost just collapsed under the weight of trying to do too many things at once. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was humbling for me because it was one of the first times I actually went through a layoff. That was right around the 2000, you know, with the Y2K and the Mm -hmm. implosion of dot coms. And I just never forget the time where I'd gone through the layoff and I had to go home and tell my wife, who was pregnant at the time, that I had just been laid off. And I think that experience for me, one, it you always remember a situation like that, but it also having gotten through it helped me realize, you know, the importance of resiliency and that nothing's promised and that you're going to take risks in this world. And in some cases, the risks aren't going to necessarily work out the way you expect. But, you know, you learn from them. And it wasn't the last layoff I went through. As a result, I think it made me stronger having gone through it. But it also didn't dim my passion and desire to be part of the digital landscape. So like you mentioned, from there, I went you know, to Interland, which actually went through its own kind of acquisition and ups and downs and dealt with my second layoff there. But then I got to UPS and it was a really great time for UPS where they were trying to take digital and embed it in all the different processes that they um, use in delivering packages. So I got to work on integrating UPS technology and Yahoo and eBay, got a chance to work on what they call their enterprise release process, where you're doing digital 
implementations and you know new feature and product improvements across the entire UPS enterprise. So that also gave me an understanding of the importance of having everybody across the enterprise involved in digital transformation. You were making decisions that could literally lead to billions of dollars in revenue if things didn't come together the right way. So I think that was maybe another example of where I learned a lot from um, going through that experience. And then AKQA, I think, was another really formative one just because I got a chance to start up a studio from the ground up. I was the first employee in Atlanta for AKQA. And you know, at the time that I left, we were 33 or 34 people. We uh, had some really great products to look back and point to. And it was a really great way, again, for me to have this confidence of being able to build a team, build a studio, create an environment where we could really do some phenomenal digital product work and also feel like, you know, you really were able to um, show what you could do when there was just, that, again, that high level of uncertainty of what the future might bring. So I really uh, look back and cherish that experience. And I think that's what also gave me that much more confidence now coming to Work & Co, of being able to know how to create something and build it and also do it in a way that um, really builds in a great environment for creativity. So your career has really grown and blossomed in the same kind of trajectory as I think Atlanta has grown, not just as a tech hub and like a well-known startup city, but also as a design city. And you're bringing that here with this new work and co-office and then building off of all the work that you've done. If there's somebody that's out there listening that wants to kind of follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? I think what I would say is, one, obviously, the, the earlier points around resilience and, you know, once you find that there's something that you're passionate about, not letting short term setbacks, you know, change your desire to be able to um, uh, pursue them. And I think um, one of the other things that I think has been really valuable for me is to also have um, great examples that I can look to of people that have been down that road before and have kind of in some ways inspired me to continue on doing the work that I'm doing. I think for someone that wants to break into the digital product space, I think there's also a good point to be made in terms of all the different ways that you can be part of this company without necessarily being a designer. For Working Co. in particular, in many ways that proverbially takes a, uh, a village to build uh, really great products and to be able to um, ship them. So that includes being having great strategists, great product managers, great technologists. You had Reese on earlier, you have great writers. And then you also need all that infrastructure, whether it be HR or recruiters, marketers, PR. So even though we're very much focused on digital product design and development, we have to have all those different skills and capabilities in order to um, be successful. So one of the things I think that's really important is for people to have exposure and visibility to um, this area uh, and this type of work. And I think one of the most unfortunate things for a lot of uh, African-Americans is they don't even know that like this exists as a career, you know, that you can mm -hmm. be a managing director, or you can be a, um, a great designer, or you can be a great technologist and work in this environment. You know, I think it's, it's just kind of a shame that there aren't more venues like this podcast and like some of the other things that are out there to just give high schoolers and middle schoolers who are coming up an understanding and an appreciation for what digital product design is all about. So that may be a little bit of a tangential answer to your question, but I think more than anything else, you've got to work your network. Usually there's a friend of a friend who knows somebody at a company that you want to get involved in. And I think you've got to be able to have the confidence and encourage to be able to work your network as well as recognize that, you know, you may have to take a somewhat, you've got to come in sometimes through the side door versus the front door. 
and find a way that, you know, if you've been working in customer service, there might be a way that you could use that to get into the operations side of an agency. And then by doing that, get exposed to other areas that you might want to actually grow into and be able to take courses and develop skills from from that standpoint. I mean, I've worked with some great designers that actually started off being developers and that they you know really mm-hmm. saw that that integration and the intersection between technology and creativity and were able to grow into more senior roles over time. So I'd say those are some of the points of advice that I would probably give to someone thinking about this particular industry. Now, I feel like I know what the answer to this is going to be, but I'll, I'll ask it. But what are you the most excited about at the moment? There's a couple things that I'm really excited about. I mean, one and yeah, maybe it's the silver lining of the uh, pandemic. But now that we've been through two years of basically self-isolation, the level of digitization of every different aspect of our lives, you know, something that we couldn't have even imagined a couple years ago. You know, the fact that we can do almost every aspect of whether it's like healthcare or you know managing finances or running a business or engaging with um, colleagues via Zoom and things like that, we've basically gone through arguably five to ten years of digital evolution in the span of two. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that excites me and one of the reasons why I think it's such a great time for Work and Co. is the fact that you know if you really look at all the different developments that have come to play in the last two years, you know, there's a digital product designer and a digital product technologist and a product manager behind almost everything that you you can think of that's emerged over the last two years. So it's a really great time to be able to work in this industry and to help create what the next wave of digital innovations and advancements are going to be. So um, that's one of the really, I think, important things that really gets me um, excited about where we are right now. And I mean, literally, society is remaking itself before our eyes. And it's remaking itself with this veneer and this kind of core of digital from every different aspect of it. And I think so many of the folks that are coming into the um, space now, their wildest dreams are probably underestimating exactly what's going to play out in the next 10 years. Who are some of the folks that have like influenced you over the years? I mean, going from Philly to Atlanta and again, the long career that you've had here, like who are some of the people that have really kind of helped you out as mentors or as peers? How I would answer that is a few different positions. I mean, one, I think, you know, from an inspiration standpoint, uh, I mean, my mother and father are at the core of it. I mean, my dad, he was raised kind of the later years of his elementary and high school life by an aunt. He grew up in Delaware. And if you know anything about Delaware in the um, in the 50s and, uh, you know, the 60s, I mean, it was a pretty segregated place. My mom actually used to get up in the morning and look across the street at a school that she couldn't go to because of the color of her skin. So for them to be able to create the opportunity for me to um, be where I am, I think is something that I always just take as a point of inspiration, that no matter kind of where you are currently with the right support and the right inspiration, you can really go anywhere. So start with that in terms of those who inspired me. And I think we maybe didn't talk about it too much, but yeah, I think there is really, we really underestimate the importance of representation just how important it can be to see somebody in a role that you never envisioned yourself in. And the example I'll give you is when I was at IBM, I was in the uh, media and um, technology kind of uh, group within IBM at the time. And we were at this conference in IBM. And, uh, you know, they generally have these big sales conferences where they get together people from all over the country. And I think we were at Disney at the time. We were in this big conference room. 
they were uh, having different presentations. But then they had this one section of the conference where they had an executive come out. And uh, the executive was actually John Thompson, who um, is currently a, um, I think he's a lead director at Microsoft. And I remember being in the audience and seeing John Thompson walk out on stage. And if you know anything about John Thompson, I mean, really inspirational. He's almost like the same demeanor as like a Barack Obama in terms of how he talks and just how engaging he can be. And I remember just being transfixed by him walking out on stage, being who he was, and being just so moved by the fact that there was this guy who looked like me, you know, in some cases kind of talked a little bit like how I talk, and he was running a major part of IBM's business, and then he went on to become uh, CEO of Symantec. And I think people don't always realize just how important a incident like that can be. I mean, I never got a chance to really talk to John Thompson. I only saw him for a very short period of time. But that experience for me was something that told me that, yeah, I can be a managing director. You know, I can be, I can start a studio. I can do all the things that I see everybody else doing because he's already done it. He's been there and he's been able to, um, achieve in an environment that probably wasn't very favorable to him being successful. So that's how I would probably answer the question about mentors. And then wherever I've been, whether it's at BCG, you know, I had Jim Lowry and Justin Dean, who were great role models for me as a managing director. When I was at uh, UPS, I had Joycelyn Pearson, who was my boss, a dynamic and phenomenal leader. Those are the things that I think helped me get through those tough times. And it helped show me the importance of seeing and knowing from seeing that you can be that person and be successful in any type of environment. Now, where do you think your life would have gone if you hadn't started working in the creative field? For me, it goes back to that point around exposure because. I've always had kind of an interest in creativity and design. Had I been exposed earlier to architecture as a field, I think candidly, I might have actually gone into that as a uh, career. But growing up, you just didn't have that level of exposure to um, you know, the wide range of fields that are available that tap on the creative side of the brain. You know, I remember like when I was um, at Razorfish and, you know, we started to look at some of the other parts of the business and like the media side of the business. And you walk into these media agencies and you would see kind of a sea of white faces and in many cases, a sea of white female faces. And, you know, and some of it, it kind of was a result of people being exposed to things and recognizing that these are places that actually existed that you could have careers. And I think for a lot of African-Americans and people of color, they don't necessarily have exposure to some of these different fields and areas of possible careers. And as a result, we don't necessarily get a chance to develop as big of a body of leaders and representatives in those in those companies and in those industries. What do you want your legacy to be? For me, you know, I think it actually goes back to this question of purpose. And when I was at BCG, I was in a, a part of BCG called Bright House, and we spent a lot of time with organizations talking about purpose. And I think, you know, when you first come out of school, a lot of your focus is on what do I need to do to show that I can be successful and how can I achieve and show my achievements? And I think now where I am in my life, it's actually less about let me, let me do things to prove what I can do versus actually what can I do to actually help drive and leave a legacy behind. So when I was at Bright House, we talked a lot about personal purpose. We went through some exercises and I ended up with my personal purpose being to live and to lead with optimism. Yeah, you know, when it comes to legacy, I think if I can 
be an example that other people look to and see that it's possible to be a managing director or to um, be successful in being kind of a quasi entrepreneur and to bring new things into being. That's, I think, gets to my answer around legacy, being able to help empower others to understand and be optimistic about what they can become and not feel like they're limited by where they may be at a certain point in time. Just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work, about Working Co.? Like, where can they find that online? Well, they can definitely find out more about Working Co. at uh, work.co, which is our, our website. And I think it's a great way to see the the wide range of work that we do, the different types of careers that we have, as well as uh, the capabilities that we have in-house. And, you know, if people want to learn more about me, obviously, there's uh, LinkedIn, which uh, is a great way to connect and, you know, get a better understanding of some of the different things that I've been involved in, both on the professional side, as well as I've been involved in some non-for-profit organizations, too. Like there's one that I'm involved with now called Redefine Ed. And it's actually a uh, non-for-profit focused on improving educational outcomes for Atlanta public school students. So that's another passion of mine and and a place that you can learn more about me and how I'm involved in the community. Nothing about the cars? Uh, well, I am a car enthusiast, so <laughs> you've done your research, and uh, I do like to tinker with automobiles. I haven't had as much time, you know, in most recently, but I've spent some time working on everything from a Pontiac Fiero to a, a Porsche 944. I mean, right now I'm I'm playing around with a BMW. So yes, I do like to get my hands dirty and kind of take my mind off the day to day by just figuring out how things work and making them work better. Sounds good. Sounds good. Chip Gross, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. One, just for sharing the passion that you have behind building this new studio, this new branch of Work & Co. here in Atlanta, but also to show just how much perseverance you've had throughout your entire career, how much you've brought to the Atlanta creative community. I'm really excited to see where work in co really comes from here. But then of course, I'm really just, you know, as you talked before about visibility and representation, it's good for someone like me to see someone like you doing what you're doing. And I hope for people that are listening that they are, are proud to see that as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure and I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully uh, gave some people some inspiration to come and be part of this whole world of digital product design and development. Big, big thanks to Chip Gross. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Chip and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd love to hear from you. You know, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, so you can always find us on social media. Just look for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. You know, we actually haven't gotten a good five-star review in a while. And I read all the five-star reviews here on the show. So if you want an easy way to get on an episode of Revision Path, leave us a five-star review. 
we'll read it. I'll read it. So, you know, let us know. (laughs) You know, the more people that you tell about the show, the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.